1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: Hi, hello, and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. To reclaim salt water to an archaeologist, or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 48. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo This episode premieres on the day of Halloween, and could it be that we're in for yet another Spook Tackler? some extent, but to be, to be honest with you, no, not really. While the episode Dark Forces from Ancient Aliens Season 10 Episode 4 does it best to be perceived as scary or spooky, I find a lot more problematic things that we will spend our energy on within this episode. This episode will not deal much with archeology to be honest, but we will have some thrilling discussions anyway. First, we will talk about how ancient aliens and similar shows add to the stigma of mental health with the um, with the claims that they make within the show, and then we will move on to talk about the Rasputin myth, and we will find out who he really was and learned that many of the pop culture myth that we hear about him are well incredible incredibly wrong last out we will deal with a Nazi symbol called the black sun some claim it to draw from Norse sources we will discover however that's far from the case and that the origin of this neo-Nazi myth uh, originates from a 1991 thriller novel. Remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientalians.com. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star review that I heard so much about. And if you want to learn more how to support the show and Archaeological Podcast Network, I will tell you more about that at the end of the episode. You know, books and stuff ain't free, you know. Before we start the show, I just want to say that while discussing mental health, it will be a bit more of an academic approach to this discussion, but if you struggle and need someone to talk to, you can call the US hotline on number 988. And if you listen from any other country, I've added more resources in the episode description here in your podcast player app. Now that we have finished our preparation, let's dig into the episode. Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans, anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARKPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. So I have repeatedly said that this show is dangerous and I am prepared to sound like a broken record here. Let's just listen to the the first claim of, of the show here. Richard
1: Ramirez, the Night Stalker, found guilty of killing 13 people. He claims to be a minion of Satan sent to Earth to carry out atrocities for the devil. David Berkowitz son of sam charged with killing six people and wounding seven others he stated that he was a soldier in a satanic army ted bundy serial killer and rapist arrested in connection with over 36 murders he alleged that something overtook him while committing the crimes he called it the entity were these men simply delusional? Or could their claims that they were compelled to violence by dark entities actually be true?
0: Yeah, I'm going to be a bit blunt here. There's nothing scary, dark or spooky really going on here, or there the frightening thing is how the show writers again try to demonize mental illness. I know that we covered this in part while exploring the myths surrounding the Ikegahara forest, but I will continue here on a little bit of a different track. While I can somewhat understand the fascination some have for serial killers, myself I don't really get it. However, I see a danger in how they are portrayed here, both that they Diagnosis are your speculation, and especially the connection between Satan and the disorders of these people. I have not found that these three were officially diagnosed, and most of the assumption about their condition are from people who never met them. While understanding their mental health can be significant, it's most interesting because we could potentially help people before it's too late. Not from really. Uh, criminal perspective per se that's that's what I'm going to say about these men. Now some of you might wonder what the issue here is and that's fine and some of you might already know where this conversation is heading. There is an issue of stigmatization around mental disorder in our society and ancient aliens managed to contribute to both toward the religious stigma of mental health and the idea that people with mental health are evil and dangerous. That people within the religious community have a built-in stigma originating from their faith should not maybe come as a considerable surprise and several studies have been published in the area, both from religious and secular publication. Most of the studies in the English language tend to, no surprise, focus on the Abrahamic religions, and that includes Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. This is a fact that I just want to highlight so the discussion we are going to have here will be slightly skewed toward the Western world. And I just want to point out there there is a lack of data in case you have questions and wondering why i don't bring up other culture in this segment now as i mentioned studies have been done on the connection between mental illness religion, and stigma. For some time, many point out that connecting mental illness with sin and immorality leads to symptoms being we viewed as something the individual themselves are responsible for and has caused or, you know, brought upon themselves. As Lloyd and uh, Pangalopos 2022 point out, there is, quote harmful to individuals as they confate suffering with individual responsibility such as by claiming the person's lack of faith or sinful behavior. Blaming the cause of mental illness on the outside force lead to the idea that the individual could have prevented this by acting differently and in a 2023 article the same author state that these ideas quote lead to diminished treatment seeking and unhelpful intervention which view the individual as at fault for their illness and position them in a passive recipient of spiritual intervention and we don't fare better in the muslim communities where mental illness to this day is a blame in many communities as being possessed or caused by the jinn. Authors within the Muslim world point out that while there is no connection between mental illness and jinn possession in the Quran, the belief is firmly rooted within the folk superstition itself. Islam and Campbell wrote in a 2012 article the rather sad statement that, quote, self-stigma because he or she has grown up believing that the devil causes madness and community or family stigma because they too have grown up with this idea. Such shame and stigma understandably result in Muslims either failing to seek or significantly underutilizing much needed healthcare treatment. What we see here in the religious context, we also see kind of in the alien sphere. It's not Unknown that people believed to have been abducted by aliens, encounter them, or in cases they think they even are possessed of them. Often they don't seek medical treatment. Or maybe even worse, go to memory regressing therapy, hypnotists, or support groups where their beliefs are confirmed and aggravated. While they don't necessarily face the stigma as their religious counterpart, they still hesitate to seek out medical professionals. And for example, this is something we brought up in episode 44, Alien Abductions, Kachinas, and Peru's Elongated Skulls. There's also ample evidence that the portrayal of mental health in popular media affects how we view disorders and treatments. So a lot of responsibility falls on the writers here, but unfortunately they decide to use... uh, (laughs) Or they decide to portray mental illness as something evil, something dangerous and violent. Worth pointing out is that ancient aliens are not the only popular media that engage with this trope and try to make content out of it. It's been around for (laughs) for quite a long time. Time, the first time the scary doctor trope <laughs> appeared on film was in 1914 with the movie Andy and the Hypnotist, in which a young man is put under the control of a nefarious doctor by hypnosis. But the hypnotist, named Mysterio, is arrested by a children's society agent, and Andy ends up on a, a intended murderous spree acting as a Native American, which which uh, retrospect is problematic <laughs> for sure. And with this movie, a new genre was born within film. Now, and this phenomenon has been quite well studied and Hayden et al. have classified the negative stereotypes as follow. So first in movies we have the homicidal maniac that appears in films such as Psycho, American Psycho and The Exorcist. Then we have the rebellious free spirit labelled mentally ill by society. But in the end they are vindicated since nice characters can't be mentally ill. And moving on we have the -the run-of-the-mill enlightened member of society as depicted in King of Hearts we had a female patient as a seductress and a narcissistic parasite and lastly we have of course the Sue specimen and if you think back about a movie depicting someone with mental health i'm sure you can start to see how the character might be problematic even if they are not shown as dangerous as stereotypes are still harmful even if it's a lovable free spirit portrayed as a trope leading to you know destructive ideas about mental illness and health and there is a clear link between the stigma around mental illness and the discrimination of these people in areas such as housing employment relationships and even funding for treatment center or mentally healthy equality leading in the end to a Loss of status, low self esteem, shame, withdrawal, and less likely to seek professional help for this. Much of this seems unfortunately to be rooted in the media portrayal of mental health. In 2002, six out of ten of the most popular violent movies included someone who were depicted as suffering from mental illness. The characters are often referred to with derogatory terms and often the villain in these movies were reported to be mentally ill as we see in the Halloween movies, for example. And looking at the top 100 films from 2016 and 2017 and the top 100 top rated series during this time in 46% of those uh, involving a mentally ill character. This character was the perpetrator of violence, while usually it's the other way around, the mentally ill persons are less likely to be the perpetrator of violence and almost almost always the victim of violent crimes. Percival and Mayers publicized a study in 2016 where they aimed to see how, how movies affect a person's attitude towards people with schizophrenia. When shown a film with a fear-based portrayal, the subject's uh, Tended to more often support stigmatization attitudes, such as, I would be afraid to meet somebody who has schizophrenia and people with schizophrenia need to be supervised at all times. If we compare these results with a control group or the group that saw positive representation of schizophrenia, we, we could see that these people had a improved attitude toward people suffering from this mental illness. And the media representation not only affects society's view about mental health, but can also skew and hinder advancing knowledge about mental health. Mental health. Further, as we touched on, the stigma born from this portrayal leads to people not seeking medical help, even if they feel they would need it. It's also been demonstrated that even if help is sought, people don't stick with the treatment due to the stigma enforced by films directed at both adults and children. The healthcare portrayed in movies is also can also set an unrealistic expectation on how the treatment will be and how a mental facility will look like and work within it. Again, this hinders people from seeking treatment to, you know, being afraid to, quote, turn into a zombie or getting shock treatment, in a treatment that in some cases might help alleviate some symptoms. But if you picture how a mental facility operates it's usually influenced by movies. Since most of these portrayals are negative, you might not want to seek one out fearing to be, you know, becoming Jack Nicholson's character in A Flight Over the Cocoa Nest. A common trope is that you will be locked up indefinitely. you don't do what medical professional wants or anything like that, that you will be robbed of your freedom for money or all of that rather unrealistic ideas that we still see in movies and television shows and even less extreme example mental health professionals often set unrealistic standards where you know the cure is often portrayed to be love and family two things that can benefits someone undergoing treatment but should not be deemed the only cure towards these mental illness. Media also tend to cultivate a myth that uh, psychiatry can be anything and therapy can be anything around you. So to round up this segment we have demonstrated how movies and religions affect our views and often in a way that increase the stigma around mental health. While there are of course potential upsides if used positively, key phrase there, positively, this is not really the current case that we see in uh, well our modern modern pop culture. And even if Ancient Aliens is uh, not the most prominent show out there, they still contribute to these ideas and actually need to take responsibility for it, because this is not the first time we see this depiction. And from the look, it will continue in later episodes, in later series. This is something I have mentioned and certainly will do in the future. Again, Ancient Aliens is a harmful show in more than promoting alien theories. They stigmatize people suffering from mental health issues. And on that very upbeat note, I will go and cool off the nerves with some whiskey while you listen to a couple of messages welcome back we have now moved from the demonic realm to russia maybe it's the same (laughs) where we will encounter perhaps one of the most famous and most uh, misunderstood figure from the russian revolution grigory rasputin a name that's become almost a synonym for evil and villainy. He have uh, even appeared as the main bad guy in the well, well at least now, <laughs> Disney movie Anastasia. There is uh, so much legend about this man that scholars as we will learn have difficulty separating truth from fiction. Very little academic work seems to have been written about Rasputin, especially in English. There are, however, Tons, tons of popular science book and articles on him with a wide variety of quality. More have been published in Russian, of course, and Rasputin seemed to have uh, appeared in several memoirs of people from the era. The drawback is here that I don't read Cyrillic and translate it will, well, even transcribed to Western letters, will take me some time to. uh, translate properly. But with some grit and patience, I believe to have unlocked some of the real Rasputin that's hiding in all of this mess. Most things regarding Rasputin's life have been mythologized to a point where I believe most of us uh, likely consider some of these ideas as Facts. From death to birth, stories about Rasputin's life and mythologies are repeated even by historians like, in this case, Dr. Dan Haley.
1: From the uh, memoir of Maria Rasputin, Rasputin's daughter, she wrote that when he was born, there were other omens and portents, things like a dog with six legs being born, babies with deformities, that kind of thing.
0: Maria Rasputin has indeed written three memoirs. That is Rasputin, The Man Behind the Myth, published in 1977. The second is called My Father, published in 1934. And lastly, we have the first book. The Real Rasputin, published in 1929. None of these books mention these things Dr. Haley say, and it would be a bit out of character for Maria to describe her father in this way. In all these memoirs, she paints an almost saintly picture of her father, whom she seemed to have loved very much. Reading these books, it becomes evident that Haley was either mistaken, or might even have bought into part of the Rasputin mythos. The closest I get to some sort of miracle associated with Rasputin birth is that Maria claims that a comet was visible on the day of her father's birth. The issue with that statement or claim is that uh, Maria managed to get both the date and year wrong for the birth of Rasputin. According to the official records, Grigory Rasputin was born on January 9th and baptized on January 10th, 1869. Grigory was born in Pokroskoye, a small village in the vast Siberian landscape. So, Gregory was born in Pokroskoye, a small village in the vast Siberian landscape. And he was the first child of his parents, Yefim Rasputin and Anna Pashkova, to survive uh, his infancy. While the family had some money, it seemed to have been quite tight for the family. Yafim was uh, at least once jailed for not paying his taxes, and the sources seem split about Yefim. He was serving as an elder in the village church, and some have described him as a learned man, while others remark more to Yefim's fondness for vodka, for example. And the family have been in Siberia since at least 1643, one year after the founding of Pokrovskovye. A man named Isosim brought the family there, who then had no real last name, and Isosim was only known as the son of Fyodor. Isosim's son, however, Nason, took Rospotin as his last name, which would later be spelled more modern as Rasputin. There are many strange tales about the name's origin, and very few seem trustworthy. Rasputin was um, a quite common name in Siberia, and a possible source might be Rasputa, a word that would be translated to crossroads in English. The early life of Rasputin was definitely shaped by Siberia. The land and its toils follow its people. Gregory helped his father with farm work in the spring and summer while trying to shelter from the elements during the winter. Rasputin was most definitely illiterate until his adulthood, something that's Far from surprising, according to a 1897 census, the Rasputin family was uh, in whole illiterate and looking at the Russian society as a whole, only some 20% of the population could read at this time. But very little is known about Grigory Rasputin's use. This period of his life is a little bit like a black hole. As... Historian Douglas Smith puts it. This has left uh, room for some rather fanciful stories. My favorite depiction of the young Rasputin tells us, quote, In his youth, Rasputin was uh, uncommonly hapless, with a foul mouth, inarticulate speech, driveling, dirty as one can be, a thief and a blasphemer. He was the fright of the village. The quote is from um, the Petrograd leaflet from 1916, while accounts of Grigory Rasputin often depict him as a diehard criminal and a horse-thief. This seems to be a bit of an exaggeration of the reality. A gendarme report from 1909 interviewed the people of Pokroskovje, and um, then Rasputin is uh, reported to have had various vices, like, you know, getting drunk, committing some minor theft, quite minor stuff. But he then left Pokroskovje and returned a changed man, is reported by the people that they interviewed, And the leaving party is also something that's uh, often played off as a big thing. But at the time, do you really need more reason than living in, for more reason to leave than living in the middle of Siberia in a small village? Rasputin told his acolytes about his early life, and they documented in the book The Life of an Experienced Pilgrim and why he left. Gregory Rasputin himself claimed that, quote, I had many sorrows too. Whatever mistake was made somewhere, I, I was blamed, although I was not involved. Workmen from teams mocked me. I plowed hard and slept little, and I kept asking my heart how to find a way to be saved. And there are several other stories on why Rasputin left and among the alternative historians there's one in particular that's often repeated here by Kathleen Coppens.
1: One day while plowing his fields Rasputin sees a strange light in the sky and out from the middle of this light emerges a vision of the Virgin Mary and she doesn't speak to him but he watches her gesture to the horizon And Rasputin takes this to mean that he is being told by the mother of God that he must go and find himself on a spiritual pilgrimage. And this begins the huge shift in Rasputin's life.
0: And this account is actually from one of the editions of Maria Rasputin memoirs. Gregory Rasputin also mentioned that he made a pilgrims to atone for his sins, uh, or that it might have been commanded by Saint Simon of uh, Bercotorge and Yet another reason why he left could be his meeting with the theology student uh, Melety Soborovsky. Others have claimed the pilgrimage was undertaken to escape hard work or to avoid punishment for various crimes that Rasputin should have committed. Rasputin also gave us two different years for when he embarked on his pilgrim. Either it was in 1880. Ninety-three or in eighteen ninety-seven, and according to historian Douglas Smith, the later date that he gave to Father Jurveski seemed to be more likely. What we do know for a fact is that Gregory Rasputin undertook the five hundred kilometer journey from Pokrovoske to Saint Nicholas Monastery in Verkotoroje, which seems to have changed his life from there. Grigory Rasputin seemed to have been uh, quite a charismatic character, and shortly after his reformation and return to Pokroskovje, he seemed to start to uh, build a small following within the village, which soon would grow and expand as Rasputin continued his pilgrimage to different and other cities and sites. And the rumors would, of course, not stop, but they took a different style. Starting to accuse Rasputin of being part of a sect called uh, the and engaging in, according to, well, the morality of the time, lewd acts with his uh, followers. Klisty was a heretic sect founded around 1640 in Russia when the Russian Orthodox Church started to crumble, and more fanciful stories surround this cult that they would whip each other, engage in ritual orders during worship, and even cannibalism is supposed to have been performed by this group of people. Now, the whipping part connected to the cult seemed to be genuine. There are eyewitness reports to this that seems uh, quite credible, and the word CLIST translate to just whip. But the other claims lack like credible evidence are are more likely to, you know, just be attempts to vilify the cult. I also want to point out that Clisty uh, might be a clever play on Critti or Christ in Russian. Now, with Rasputin's growing influence, he then met Tsar Nicholas in November 1905, something that the Tsar records in his diary. And the royal couple seem to have taken a quite good liking to Rasputin, and he often seemed to have visited them in their palaces and at their different uh, vacation homes. Skeptical officials, however, start to launch investigations into Rasputin. And his backgrounds, hence the John Drum report that we mentioned earlier, but nothing would turn up that could remove him from the capital. But it was not until 1912 and the so-called Miracle in Spawa, SARS hunting grounds in modern Poland, that Rasputin's reputation as a healer was uh, cemented. Prince Alexei, who was suffering from hemophilia, developed a hematoma while being at the Spawa hunting grounds. And it quickly got worse. And it's claimed that the prince was nearly, if not extremely, close to death. At the time, Queen Alexandra sent a telegram back to Rasputin in Russia, who answered surprisingly quickly with a now lost telegram. It's often claimed that this telegram goes as follow: God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve, the little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. After this, it's claimed that Alexis made a miraculous recovery. Not to throw shade, but if you have the option of receiving medical help in 1910s and not, you might want to opt for the not option. <laughs> it was not uncommon to, for example, administer aspirin to hemophilex, You know, aspirin is blood thinning. And it's really not recommended to give to someone whose blood does not clot from the start. So it's suggested that his advice that basically do nothing save the prince in this case. But let's let's fast forward to 1916 and the death. Of Rasputin. I mean, we could do a hardcore history <laughs> length uh, with several episodes on Rasputin here, but we will save that for another time, another place. So let's forward to 1916 and the death of Rasputin. Uh, and that is, of course, to not anyone's surprise, surrounded with speculations, rumors, and myth.
1: Rasputin wrote an open letter to Russia. And within this open letter, he states, if I am murdered by the royal family or by someone related to the royal family, within two years, every member of the royal family will be dead.
0: This claim's origin is from Aaron Simanovich, and from the evidence we have, this seemed to be uh, a bit made up. Simanovich, however, never claimed it was an open letter, but a letter to Rasputin's lawyer to be added to his testament. Aaron Simanovich might have been inspired, however, by a letter Rasputin did send to his family. In it, Rasputin claimed that the disaster in and misfortune in general were coming. Not really a prediction, I would say. If you look back, how how it was at the end of 1916, we're two years into World War One, and the February Revolution would start relatively shortly on the 8th of March. And no, the Russian was not late to their own revolution, but you know they use a Julian calendar. At this time, making some dates rather confusing for everyone. But um, there there wasn't really any discussion if something was going to happen. The question was just when it was going to happen. And in this letter, there are no claims from Rasputin regarding his own death. And he had even had an assassin attempt on his life already at this point, but uh, he did not see this coming. And a commonly told story of Rasputin's death is that Rasputin was invited to Prince uh, Yusupov's palace on 94 Moika. That part is not really debated, but what happened after is. According to Yusupov, Rasputin was taken in through the side passage of the palace and down into the cellar where they sat down had some tea, and then Rasputin was offered cake laced with cyanide. While first at first declining the cake, Gregory then, according to Yusofov, ate several of them. And since the poison did not work in the cake, Yusofov offered some sweet wine with some potassium cyanide in it. And again, according to the story, the wine did not work either. Um, but Resp- Rasputin started to become more and more agitated. And Yusufov ended up shooting Rasputin in the chest with a revolver. Yusufov's accomplice heard a shot, came down, and there they declared Rasputin dead. And they started to set their second part of the plan in motion, pretending to drive Rasputin home. But in the meantime, Rasputin's claimed to have miraculous came-back-to-life Shouting like a wounded animal and behaving like an awful demon while he's trying to escape. The assassins hear this and follow with guns, shooting Rasputin several more times and then throwing him into the river where he is supposed to get out of his uh, ropes and everything and be frozen in a rather gruesome uh, pose. But what really happened on that night is unfortunately quite hard to tell. It does not make it easier that the people involved in the plot have later suggested that part of the story can't be true. For example, Yusufos claimed to have gotten the potassium cyanide from Vasiliev Maklakov, a later ambassador for Russia. Maklakov claimed that he did not give any poison to Yusufov, but just a harmless powder. But even if the poison was obtained, the one who laced all the cakes and all the wine, Dr. Stanislav Lasovert, changed his mind in the last section the second and did not want to break his uh, hippocratic oath so lassovert claimed to have used something else and it suggested that he used aspirin instead and the autopsy could not really confirm anything other than a gunshot to the head as a cause of death no sign of drowning or poison seemed to have been visible in the autopsy but again this was performed in the early 1900s where, you know, we were still giving aspirin to hemophiliacs, so we might have to take this with a grain of salt, of course. And Maria Rasputin also claimed in her memoirs that her father did not enjoy sweets, so the poison part of the story would be completely out of the question. And while we might be, well, not able to fully confirm the story, I think it's important to note here that in that the, the story primarily builds on Yusuf's claim. And he wanted to eliminate Rasputin due to his uh, claimed influence over the Tsar. So using the rumors surrounding this religious man and Yusuf then tried to portray him as in more or less in league with the devil a satan incarnated trying to destroy the beautiful russia homeland and all this so he's just saving russia from this enemy and it's important to to remember that tales can have an agenda and we need to evaluate this agenda when we're listening at the story interestingly nationalists has picked up this story, and then completely reversed it. So in the nationalistic version of the story, Yusufus is portrayed as a decadent bisexual who has been influenced to become one of those secular Westerners. Yusufus then tried to kill the protector of Russia, Rasputin, who gets, well, protection from God Almighty due to his pure orthodox belief in the one Almighty God. But the devil could not be beaten in the end and he dies. Alien proponents in turn claim that Rasputin was possessed or channeled, you know, alien being and those were the ones protecting him in all of these powers and everything, trying to tie in their segments back to the idea that extraterrestrial beings can take over a person and make them do evil things. Again, this adds to the stigma around mental health in this while Rasputin seems to not have been mentally ill. The ancient aliens want to make this type of connection. In the end, Rasputin was not some evil magician who tried to take over Russia, but more or less a convenient scapegoat during a time of uh, extreme turbulence. And I find the connection that the show make that Rasputin was possessed by evil aliens quite harmful, to be honest. And it does to tie into the idea of stigmatization that we talked about in the first part of this show. And out of the oven and into the fire we travel to Nazi Germany for this last section. After these few messages. Welcome to the Renaissance Castle, Wevelsburg outside a small village in Germany. We have been here previously in our episode Aliens and the Third Reich. But it seems to be time to make a revisit at the site. The castle was built in 1603 and acquired by Heinrich Himmler in November of 1933 who wanted to expand the palace and uh, make it to become a cult place for his areosophic ideas. One symbol in the castle had been the center of many theories and speculations. Mike Fitzgerald described the Black Sun symbols just as this. Favelsburg Castle was acquired
1: in 1933 by Himmler. He intended to make that the spiritual center of the world. The Black Sun symbol symbolized an invisible sun or a dead sun and consequently it was believed that there was hidden power that resided in that that could be tapped that would link you into a completely different source of energies from the ordinary ones that you would get.
0: In what was formerly known as the SS-Obergruppführer Hall, located on the first floor of the castle, we can find a room with 12 pillars, and a type of sun symbol with 12 spokes created from tiles in the center of the rooms. Each spoke almost looks like a sigrun and connects to... uh, the center of the symbol in what could be described as a shield. There have been speculation that this symbol have taken inspiration from older sources. While it's often suggested to be a Norse symbol, it is in fact not. What we know today as the Black Sun seems to be modeled after French Disc with a similar design we find these in graves especially women graves interestingly as disc that seems to have been part of either a belt or a brooch for a tunic during the especially merovingian period in France while there are older examples from the bronze age the ones we find during the 5th and 8th century ce and early middle ages are more analogous to what we see at the floor or seeing the floor at Velvetburg. But why did Himmler uh, add this symbol to the floor of this castle? As usual, we can thank our three usual suspects uh, within Nazi symbolism Gideon von Liszt, William Landing, and Helena Blavatsky. In her most influential work, The Secret Doctrine from 1888, Blavatsky described, quote, A point unseen and mysterious, the ever-hidden center of attraction of our sun and system. And within this quote she makes a distinction between the Semitic and Aryan cosmology. An idea that was picked up by the Volkish movement in Germany, and Guido von Liszt often talk about this primal fire. But the most influence over the Black Sun as a modern neo-Nazi idea could be credited to William Landing, a former SS member and occultist who in large preserved the idea of Ariosophy and introduced it to later generations of Nazis landing wrote for example the thule theology to attract younger people to the esoteric nazis that he is or was promoting and in this fantasy for right-wing radicals a former ss official are heroes fighting you know the jewish conspiracy and he mixes atlantis and the origin of aryans with a neo-nationalistic mythos of hidden nazi ufo based in antarctica Nazi-Tibet connections, of ancient masters, grain myths, and of course alchemy. And it makes sense that Himmler would have found this concept about the esoteric light fascinating, and most likely why the symbol is found here can be found within the esoteric ideas. Himmler is one of the few top Nazis official who were active in the esoteric movement during Nazi Germany. But something we should note here is that within Nazi Germany there was not a concept referred to as the black sun or schwarze sonne. The symbol we find in Wewelsburg was only referred to as a Sonnenrad or a sun wheel by the Nazi Germans. SS officer and folklorist Bernhard Frank, who spent time at the castle around 1935, Never heard the term black sun being used to reference the sonarad in the center of this room. He claims that this is a post war idea. And this claim seemed to be correct. The first connection made between the concept of the black sun and the sun wheel that we find at Velvetburg is in the book The Black Sun on Tashi Lunopo. By author Russell MacLeod, released in 1991. In the book, MacLeod links the Sun Wheel to the esoteric myth of Karl Maria Willigott and Gideon von Liszt. And the book is a occult Nazi thriller that utilized the Nazi mythos around Tibet. Tule, and Mongolia. And the Nazi mythos incorporated Blavatsky's idea about Shambhala, a concept that Blavatsky herself borrowed from uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And within this branch of Buddhism, uh, Shambhala is uh, a type of spiritual kingdom. And within theosophy, this spiritual kingdom became an invisible land where the hidden masters who spoke to the theosophic prophets like Helena Blavatsky resided. The Nazis also added the idea of Agartha to their legends, and this is an invention by Alexandre Saint-Uves, the Alverge. It was claimed that Alexander was visited by higher masters in 1885 from Agartha. That's part of uh, Alexander's idea of the hollow of earth. In the past, they had been part of a world government, but around 3200 BCE, they had been transferred to reside within the hollow of earth instead. One of the entrance to the invisible earth and Agartha is supposedly to be found in Mongolia. And all of this become part of MacLeod's story that would come to heavily influence the neo-Nazi movement in the early 90s. And since then... The black sun of Velvusburg has become a key symbol among neo-Nazis and today is maybe one of the most frequent symbols you might encounter. But as we see here, the symbol is not connected to the Vikings or symbology used within the Scandinavian Viking societies. So the black suns with Norse runes are heavily, heavily anachronistic. Also while Fitzgerald is correct regarding the idea of an invisible sun as part of the esoteric legacy of nazi mystics he like many others get the connection between the, that idea and the symbol wrong as we see here i also want as in our nazi episode bring up the problematic aspect of connecting these horrible ideas and crimes of nazi germanians with alien. As we saw in back in episode 19, they allude to that the Germans did what they did not due to cultist following, bad people, and a horrible view of humans, but due to alien influence. These claims take away some of the individual autonomy and shift blame from the Nazis to alien. I also find it highly problematic that they allude to, to the mental illness and crimes of people in Germany during the Nazi regime. Ancient aliens is not really Holocaust denialism and it's pretty darn close to be honest and does add to the misinformation about the cause and the idea of nazism. As we have seen in the past, ancient aliens are not beyond directly quoting and using neo-nazi writers as sources in their materials. And on that bombshell, I will close out this episode. While we did not talk much about astrology, we I think we did have an exciting and at least important discussion and probably managed to remove some misguided ideas we might have had going into all of this. So, I guess we have to continue our search for alien life forms in our next episode. Well, until next time, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or, preferably, among your fellow trench dwellers or armchair professors. For more information about me and the podcast, check out diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find an extensive list of sources and resources and reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter on the episode page. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash diggingupancientaliens or If you want to get the most out of your buck, head over to archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com where you get tons of bonus content, slack channels, and early ad-free episode. And that membership covers every episode, so that's a great amount of content for your hard-earned money. And if you want to contact me, it can be done through most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martellor created the intro music, and our outro is by the amazing band called Tralskriv, who sings their song Folie Hut. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science.